This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 15th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. The Volcker Rule is the idea that banks' trades on behalf of their customers shouldn't be fraught with principal-agent problems. But it's not clear that the Volcker Rule would have prevented the financial crisis or even stemmed so-called systemic risk. Mark Calabria is the director of the Cato Institute's Financial Regulation Studies. Proprietary trading is when a financial institution, or really any entity, trades on its own account. So it's not trading on behalf of clients. Uh, It's not matching buyers and sellers. It is simply engaging in speculative market behavior on its own. What was the role of this in uh, the financial crisis, given that uh, a lot of firms trading on their own accounts were trading against the interests of their own clients and uh, a lot of people are claiming that this creates a principal agent problem that is advising your clients to do one thing while uh, trading in the opposite direction on on your own there's, there's certainly been a number of claims that have been made in terms of you know how, how much of a role did primary trade trading have in the crisis would we be in a different spot if the Volcker rule had been in place and of course to some degree the Volcker rule is kind of a minor uh, a modern incarnation of Glass-Steagall so a lot of people who seem to believe that we need to separate commercial and investment banking you know are really big fans of the Volcker rule I think one should start with the observation that uh, Paul Volcker himself said before Congress that if the Volcker rule would have been in place it would have made almost no difference in the crisis so he, he has essentially said that this is about the next crisis more so than it is about the last. Um, none of the institutions that got themselves in trouble, such as Bayer or Lehman or Freddie or Fannie or AIG, were really brought down by proprietary trading. It was essentially the, the normal type activities that always seem to bring 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 banks down, such as maturity mismatch and credit quality of your assets. Now, of course, there were a number of instances where financial institutions would essentially take the other side of a bet as a client. Now, some of that is, of course, you know, for me to bet tails, you have to bet heads. I mean, there, there are two sides to a market. So there is a very big gray area between what's market making, for instance. Um, you could argue that the insurance company that writes my homeowner's insurance is betting against me. <laughs> so it's not very clear. I think this has been oversimplified and exaggerated to the extent that this is either a cause of the crisis or that this is undermined and you know resulted in fraud of investors. One of the uh, things that sticks out in my mind when you talk about uh, inst- institutions taking the other side of the bet, um, in many cases that occurred because one of their clients had made a particularly large bet on something that the institution couldn't find uh, oh, someone to take the other side of. Uh, now, normally, an institution would uh, try to sell that, that is to say, to make money both ways uh, on whichever wager essentially paid off, and that's bookmaking as it is as much as it is, is market making. It, yeah, it's important. To, in, in some sense, what, the, what I think the vocal rule tries to accomplish is we normally think of investment banks as brokers and dealers. And of course, a broker simply brings a buyer and seller together and doesn't really take any interest in it other than getting a commission for doing that. A dealer maintains some sort of inventory. And part of the thing, the reason why you have sometimes these two entities combined, one is that the seller and buyer don't often arrive at the same time. 
So there is a sense of you might be a dealer, you know, in, in a factual sense because you're holding an inventory, but what you're doing over time is trying to match buyers and sellers as they appear. And so again, the Volcker Rule tries to push this back to a sort of dealer activity with the belief that you would have a smaller balance sheet and therefore you would have less risk in the system. It's also important to keep in mind that the Volcker Rule does not apply to pure investment banks. If you're not a bank holding company, then this doesn't apply to you, so you can still do this. Uh, there's some debate whether Goldman and J.P. Morgan and, and these institutions that became bank holding companies will unwind. Uh, and they, if they did, they would have to give up access. So to some extent, and Paul Volcker has been very um, clear about this, and I think this has been lost in the policy debate, he has said there's another part of the Volcker rule, which is anybody who does this and is not a depository, we don't bail out. Uh, and of course, my opinion, Dodd-Frank falls short in trying to stop bailouts of the Bear Stearns type activities. And of course, we've got this new financial stability oversight council, which essentially can declare anybody systemically important and potentially set them up for a bailout, regardless of the line of business they're in. So to some extent, I think it's important that the other side of that has been forgotten. There's another important element to this as well, which is I think if one starts from the reasonable premise that if government is providing some sort of safety net, say via deposit insurance, then it is legitimate to try to constrain the moral hazard and the risk taking that goes along with that moral hazard that is indeed created by that safety net. Of course, my first preference would be that we roll back those safety nets and reduce the moral hazard. But if you've got it, you need to control it. And so some of the thinking behind Glass-Steagall first and, and, and the Volcker rule is that these institutions will take insured deposits and other forms of bank uh, bank assets and gamble with them in the in, in the marketplace, gamble with them in securities markets. Now, again, part of the problem was that a that's not what caused the crisis, and it actually wasn't even caused didn't even cause the crisis in, in the 30s, 20s, and 30s. There have been a number of researchers have gone back and said Glass Steagall was misguided to begin with. But that said, the question should be about proprietary trading: Does it actually increase the riskiness? of the institution as a whole. In basic portfolio theory tells us that if you can combine two risky activities, they are actually less risky combined than they would be separately. So I, I would have a concern over are we actually making institutions less safe by forcing what we believe is risky activity out if that risk activity is not exactly correlated with the other risky activity. I mean all financial activities are risky. The question is, how do you make the portfolio of risky activities less risky and offset them and make it more stable? So there certainly is some risk that we make this you know, less uh, stable. I've always scratched my head to some extent about the position of those who feel like we will make banks more stable by making them less profitable. Mark Calabria is director of the Cato Institute's Financial Regulation Studies. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.